Would you stand or remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, or false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, and wait for the Lord. This is the word of God. Uh, might be wondering, I am not Josh, just a lot older. <laughs> I am uh, Clay Barnes, and I have the privilege of being able to be here this morning. Josh and family are on vacation. For those that might be here for the first time, or for our, our guests that um, may have been away for a while, we're in the midst of a, a series on rhythms or practices that help us engage in Sabbath that might move us away from some of the restlessness that this world brings and how these practices might be able to allow us to engage with a creator God who gives us an incredible invitation. So we're in the midst of this. And as we begin, let me pray. Gracious God, as we are gathered here today, I pray that uh, you would prepare hearts and prepare minds God, that we would hear what you want us to hear, we would promptly forget what you want us to forget. God, that you would use the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts to bring you honor and glory this day through Christ. Amen. Okay, this is week four of eight in a series. We had a series of seven in the spring. Come on already, guys. Can't you move on? I get it. In fact, I'm beginning to get a little restless that we're not moving on. And so my question is, do we really get it? Do, do we get it? Let me remind you of the symptoms that we've talked about, about our restless world. Some of the symptoms of restlessness, fatigue and exhaustion and anxiety or this kind of general angst over life depression, discontentment, unsettledness, disappointment, 
fear of silence and solitude, fear of being alone, all other variations, are they still plaguing us? I don't know. I want to, in light of where we've been, I want to start on a little more uplifting note in in case my sermon kind of takes a dive into the little heavier. So let me start on this uplifting note. Um, I'm looking at pre-pandemic statistics. Okay, so these are statistics from 2019. Pre-pandemic, that becomes important. In 2019, almost $2 trillion globally was lost in production due to anxiety and depression. $2 trillion. In 2019, the United States spent $236 billion on depression aid alone. It's estimated another $46 billion was spent on anxiety aid. In 2019, 20% of all adults, 18 and older, sought some type of professional help with anxiety and depression. Young adults aged 18 to 34 accounted for just over 50% of the adults that sought this. How are we doing? You uplifted? If you weren't feeling some level of anxiety when you came in, maybe now you are. (laughs) As stated several times, we are talking about Sabbath, but the problem with Sabbath is this. God offers us a special gift and a special invitation in Sabbath. The problem is we more often than not reject that gift. You see, in our efficiency and productivity-driven worlds, the rhythms and the practices of Sabbath, those things that allow us to connect with God, are, are seen as contrary. Those, those rhythms of feasting and delighting and resting and stillness are things that actually hinder productivity and efficiency. They actually cause us to not be productive, whereas the world wants to speed us on towards this productivity and this efficiency that drives us. But here's what I want you to understand. It's not just our generation that has faced this. The prophets, prompted by God, they were, was, were prompted by God to remind the people for centuries that, that we as a people would tend to reject this gift of God. Isaiah writing some 2,700 years ago. Isaiah writes this. Very well then with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people to whom he said, this is a resting place. Let the weary rest. This is a place of quiet, but they would not listen. What is the place that that God is saying when he says this place? If you read the full context of Isaiah 28, it is simply the presence of God. The presence of God is a resting place, but you would have none of it. A couple chapters later, Isaiah goes on in chapter 30, and he says this. This is what the sovereign Lord says, the Holy One of Israel. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Now, we get the repentance piece. In repentance is your salvation. But do we get the second part? In repentance and rest is your salvation. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength 
but you would have none of it. So folks, I need you to understand that running away from rest and towards restlessness is not a 21st century invention. We simply are learning to run away more efficiently. Efficient restlessness. How's that fit? We're learning to be more efficient with our running away. A.J. Swoboda, who is a, um, a pastor, author, and theologian in his, his, his neat little book called Subversive Sabbath, The Surprising Power of Rest in a Nonstop World. Great little book. He says this, The need for rest is greatly misunderstood by so many Christians in today's world. I cannot count how many times I have heard a well-intended Christian leader say, I'll sleep when I get to heaven. I love this phrase. What a lamentably non-biblical cliche. In the end, we will get to heaven much quicker if we don't rest. We will. So our focus in this series is on some simple practices or rhythms that might help us engage with Creator God, with the God who offers us invitation to come in, to be in God's presence. The past three weeks, Josh and, and John last week have, have offered us some simple practices in and around the idea of rest, remembering, and last week in delighting in the Lord. This morning, I want to look at how worship can be and in fact needs to be one of these rhythms, one of the rhythms of Sabbath. I want to look at how worship is actually a posture of Sabbath and, and how Sabbath can help create space and time for, for a rhythm that will allow us a more intimate connection with God if, if we take the time to create that time and space. So I want to start with a, a word association. If I were to do this word association, I said, okay, what's the first thing that comes into your mind when you hear the word worship? Now, my guess is for some it would be a place. It might be a sanctuary. It might be a place like this. For others, it might be a style, contemporary or, or traditional. For others, it might be content. It, it, is it liturgical? Is it more freeform? What's the style? For others, worship might be kind of a place in your worship service. It might be a particular song. It, you might be thinking of a sermon. It might be the table. But let me ask you this. How often when you think of the word worship, do you think of connection to God? I wonder how often we think about intimacy with God as a definition of worship. For me, Oftentimes when I think of the word worship, I think of worship wars. You see, our family has, has been through some worship wars, and I can tell you, they are brutal. Churches have split. Denominations have formed over worship styles and, and content. And I wonder what God thinks about our view of worship that way. Because, you know, God is the center of worship, right? Right? We're here to worship God. So God, I am worshiping you as I tell these other folks they're doing it all wrong. I worship God. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to worship today. The pastor's sermon better be good, better be short. 
that worship leader better have those decibels set at 70. If they don't, I've got my decibel meter right here, so let's worship. Think about it. We, you see, we often think that we're in worship. We can be gathered here as we are this morning in worship and not worship and not be worshipful. It's one of those amazing things you see every Sunday, Lem and his team, Josh and whoever's standing here preaching, our prayer leaders, those serving the Lord's table, they offer us a gift of a possible worship experience. But you and I have to choose whether we're going to accept that gift, whether we're going to accept the offer of worship. I love this. Nathan Bierme is a, is a linguistic author, a linguistic scholar that I often go to for word association. Nathan says this, in an era in which therapeutic and marketable models for worship have gained so much popularity and influence, suggesting that worship must please people rather than God, it may reorient us to ask, is our worship fit for the king? He goes on to state this, the root word of worship can also help remind us of what worship is meant to be. Worship or worth-ship is an act of affirming God's worth, not boosting God's self-esteem, not mere deference or flattery, not appeasement, but worship is fundamentally a declaration that God is worthy. It's, it's what the elders model for us in Revelation 4 and 5. You know that beautiful scene in all of Scripture, it's really the only full-on scene of heaven. Revelation 4, the elders see God sitting upon the throne and they, they say this in Revelation 4, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created. And then in Revelation 5, they see the lamb before the throne and they go, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. What's the key word? Worthy. Worthy. So following their lead on Sundays, we not only sing great is our God or God is great, but we also sing worthy is the Lord who was slain. You see, we not only lift God up, but we affirm the high place that God already is and inherently exists. That our act in, in worship is a way of an appropriate attitude for someone who is infinitely worthy. And that's what worship is. However, this morning, I, I don't want to focus so much on corporate worship. That's its own discipline. And, and that's a part of Sabbath. But I want to ask a series of questions for you this morning, for us. First, what might worship look like? within the context of our own Sabbath times, within our own rhythms? How can a Sabbath rhythm enhance our connection with God, encourage our connection with God? And how can this speak into our restless worlds? What things might help us in worship to step out of the restlessness and into our world. Michael Linvall, who's a Presbyterian pastor, I love his definition of worship. 
His definition, he describes worship this way. It's the weekly practice of trying not to be God. Think about that. Worship is a practice of trying not to be God because we spend the rest of our weeks trying to be God. We spend the rest of our time figuring out what is the best plan. And I wonder what it would be like if we incorporated God's plan. You see, God's plan leads to rest. Our plans tend to lead to restlessness. If we were to incorporate God's plans into our, our Sabbath times, Maybe we'd be more ready to meet with God, creator God. Maybe we would be more ready to hear the voice of God, to worship our creator. So as we, as we look at some specific rhythms, some specific things, there's one thing that each of the sermons that Josh and John preached that's required. One thing in all three of them, and that is time. Sabbath helps create time and space, a holy time and a holy space. Sabbath creates the time and the space that can help us be worshipful, can help us come into the very presence of God. You see, you need time in order to waste time. You can't waste time that you don't have. And so you need time. And, and so, I gotta say this, and so that my sermon will pass muster with Josh, I uh, quote these words from Eugene Peterson. <laughs> it must be understood biblically, not culturally. So. He's saying Sabbath is a prerequisite. Understanding Sabbath is a prerequisite to engaging in Sabbath. It must be understood biblically, not culturally. A widespread misunderstanding of Sabbath trivializes it by designating it a day off. However beneficial, this is not a true Sabbath, but a secularized Sabbath. Sabbath means quit, stop, take a break, cool it. The word itself has nothing devout or holy in it. It is a word about time, denoting our non-use of it, what we usually call wasting time. As Josh has, has said multiple times, you're going to hear me say, you're going to hear this over and over. Sabbath is not something we add to our already hectic schedules. It doesn't become part of that restlessness and recklessness of life. It's not something we add. Remember, we have to stop in order to start so we could stop. Or we have to start to stop in order to, whatever Josh said a couple weeks ago, that's what we have to do. We have to stop in order to start. Julian of, of Norwich, Julian was a 14th century English mystic who wrote extensively about rest in God and connecting with God. In one of her works, Julian says this, in true rest, our soul sits with God. In that rest, it's unshakable strength, our soul abides in God. In endless love, our soul is naturally rooted to God. So in true rest, in God's rest, our soul sits with God, abides with God, 
and is rooted to God. The problem is, our restless worlds, in our restless worlds, taking time off, wasting time, if our only goal is to take time off away from work, the world might be right. We may be wasting time. We're certainly not productive. Sabbath allows us to waste time with God. Now, why am I using that terminology, waste time? I'm using it for one purpose only, and that is because Sabbath resists efficiency and productivity. It takes effort to resist the calls of the world. God's rest resists the productivity and efficiency-driven worlds that we live in. And so it takes effort to avoid that. And it takes effort to resist that call. Be it in June of 2023 or some 3,000 years ago when David wrote Psalm 27. You gotta remember David at this point, he's king of Israel. And he's busy conquering enemies or as our Psalm shows, trying not to get conquered. He's got all the duties of a king all the duties of running a big nation. And so he writes Psalm 27. So we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, my enemies, my foes, they will stumble and fall. Though an enemy besiege me, my heart will not fear. All of this. And then he gets to verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing I ask of the Lord. It seems odd. If you've read any of David's other psalms or even read the rest of this psalm, David was not bashful of asking God for things. Look at verses 7 to 12. Just in this psalm, no less than 10 things does he ask. Verse 7, hear my voice, be merciful, answer me, do not hide your face, do not turn your servant away, do not reject me, do not forsake me, teach me your way. In verse 11, lead me in the straight path. Verse 12, do not turn me over to the desires of my foe. Ten times. In these few verses, he's asking. So what is it that's unique about verse four? Look at verse four. One thing do I ask, this only do I seek. Now the Hebrew allows two different readings, so you might have this. One thing only do I ask, and this I seek. Or one thing I seek, this only, one thing do I ask, this only do I seek. It's the same, it's the same idea. There's one thing only that David is asking that he is, wants to pursue, and that is to dwell with God, to worship in God's presence. And this is not something that's symbolic or metaphor to David. As, as, as you know, as you read the Psalms, David's worship was full of lament and sorrow and pain but it was also full of joy and laughter. As John mentioned last week, this great dancing before the Lord as he brings the ark into, the, into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. Beautiful scene of uninhibited worship. 
So he brings this in. He, the one thing that David wants above being king, above conquering countries, above not getting conquered, he wants to dwell with God. He wants to worship at God's footstool. See how he, complete, how he concludes this great psalm, verse 13? I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. What does wait mean and require? Stopping. Stopping. Wait for the Lord. So I want to offer you three pretty simple worship practices. One that is done with, with others if they're present. And two that can, you can do on your own as part of your worship Sabbath rhythm. The first is the simplest and, and really requires very little prep. It's also one that can be done with others if they're present. A lot of times if, if, if you have a family present or you have guests present, this is one. It's a symbolic act and it has been part of the Jewish practice of Sabbath for many, many centuries. And it is the practice of lighting candles as an act of inviting the Sabbath to begin. Ann and I have um, recently been watching reruns of old movies and especially old musicals. And we have recently rewatched twice Fiddler on the Roof. Now for those who are 60 and under, Fiddler on the Roof is a musical story about a Jewish, a poor Jewish family that lives in 1905 Tsarist Russia. The family is headed by Tevye, the father, and the mother Golde, and they have five beautiful daughters. And then there's this amazing Sabbath scene in Fiddler on the Roof. It's, it's, it's an amazing scene that, that I really like. If you remember, Josh has said multiple times that getting ready for worship can be hectic. Buying food and, and, and prepping and, and getting all this stuff ready for your Sabbath. But then something mysterious can happen. Something takes place when we step out of our fast, furious gear of getting ready and move into our neutral gear. There's a transformation. In this scene, Sabbath scene in Filler on the Roof, Golde is given all these instructions uh, to the five daughters. They're in and out of the house. They're getting things ready. Occasionally, one of them will go over and pull the drapes back, and they're watching the sunset right behind a hill because the moment the sun sets, there's a transformation that takes. So they're rushing in and out, and Golda keeps saying, hurry, girls, hurry. Get ready. Your father will be home soon. He's a poor milkman that's delivering milk. He's on his way home. Hurry. The Sabbath is about to begin, and they're getting all these things. And then there's this amazing transformation that, that takes place. Traditionally, within many Jewish homes, the moment the sun sets, two candles are lit. They represent the two mitzvot of Shabbat, the two commandments of Sabbath. Remember this day, the Sabbath, and keep it. Keep it. Remember it and keep it. So the two candles are lit to begin Sabbath. 
The number two is it's just symbolizing those things, but many families will light more candles. In fact, a nice practice is that you light a candle for each person who's around the table. Maybe your children, maybe you have guests, maybe you're single and you're meeting with someone. Light the number of candles, but always at least two. After the candles are lit, the tradition is that you roll your hands over the light towards yourself three times. What does that represent? I'm going to quote a scholar, a Jewish scholar, says this, the reason hands are swept over the light towards ourselves is that the true rest is the ingathering of our energy. For six days a week, we are outward beings, investing ourselves in the world around us. During the week, work week, we are pulled in all directions, and our frantic activities drain our souls. On Shabbat, we pull back, holding our energy and focus and balance. So you just symbol of pulling your energy back, and then what would happen is they would cover their eyes. The idea of covering the eyes just gently is that it would at that moment, a Shabbat prayer or blessing would be recited. And the idea was, I'm not in Sabbath, I'm inviting God into this moment, and when the blessing is done, we're in Sabbath. We're in that sacred, holy space. Is it a symbol? Yes. Light some candles. Let it be that, that, that symbol of moving from the fast gear of preparation into this gear of neutral that says we have entered a holy space. We have entered a holy time. So that's one practice, lighting candles. A second one, a second practice that you might have involves prayer. Uh, prayer is obviously an act of worship and there are lots of different kinds of prayers. In here, we have corporate prayers of forgiveness. We have prayers of intercession. We have the Lord's prayer that we say together. We have prayers of confession. There are dark prayers. Those are the ones who go, Lord, help me. And th there are prayers of of sadness, of grief. They're prayers we call imprecatory prayers. Those are in the Bible too, of calling down curses on your enemy. <laughs> but there's one kind of prayer that I think is unique, and it is called contemplative or listening prayer. I had the privilege last year when we were in our spiritual discipline series of talking to you pretty extensively about listening prayer. The thing that, sits, that sets listening prayer apart it is the only prayer that is meant to be a dialogue. The other prayers are monologues. And if we're honest, a lot of times our prayers consist of telling God what God needs to do. And then we're thankful when God does what we want God to do. And we're not so happy when God chooses not to do it that way. But in listening prayer, it is dialogue. I am intending, I want to hear the voice of God. So when I taught this uh, last year, I, I said that there were two presuppositions that you have to believe about listening prayer. I want to add a third thing this morning. So very briefly, the two presuppositions. The first presupposition of listening prayer is this. God wants to speak to you today. Now that might sign, sound simple, but there are theological persuasions that will say everything God wants to say is right here. 
There's, there's nothing else that God wants to say. It, it, it's all here. I don't believe that. I believe this is our common denominator. This is the, this is the, the foundation on which it all rests. But I believe that when Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice and will follow me, that was not just to first century Christians. I believe it was to Christians throughout the generations until Jesus returns. My sheep will hear my voice and they will follow me. So the first presupposition is that God wants to speak to us. The second, we can hear God speak. You know, I may sound, again, that might sound obvious, but that is the one we sabotage most. We go, I must be making this up. We, how many times in your, your own quiet devotional time have, have you used something like, was that God or was that my imagination? Uh, an author I like really takes issue with that question. And he says, that's the wrong question. Was that God or was that my imagination? Because that automatically juxtaposes those as against each other. It's either God or it's my imagination. The problem is, how did Jesus teach? He taught requiring imagination. It's what we call parables, stories, and they require imagination. So this author says, that's the wrong question. The question is, is it truth? Does it align with scripture? Does it align with what I already know God is doing in my life? So I can hear God. God speaks certainly through the scriptures, but God can speak in dreams, in visions. God speaks through brothers and sisters around us day in and day out. God can also speak directly into our minds and into our imaginations. So not was that God or was that imagination, but God, what are you saying to me here? What do I need to learn? What is it that you want me to know? Listening prayer invites God into the conversation. But there's a third, it's not a, pre, it's not a presupposition. The first two are presuppositions that God wants to speak and that we can hear. The third is a prerequisite. You can now probably guess what it is. Time. Time. Time to get quiet. Time to move out of the restlessness into our world. You see, Jesus quoting in Matthew, quoting from Isaiah, a prophecy about himself. And in Isaiah, in, in Matthew 12, it's Isaiah saying, this is my servant, this is God speaking, this is my servant on whom I have put my spirit, etc., etc. It says, he will not cry out above the noise of the market. God is not going to speak above the noise of our restlessness. And so part of Sabbath is creating that holy space and that holy place for us to be able to get quiet enough to listen and to hear. Finally, one other very quick practice. It's an ancient practice. And that's the practice of the examine. E-X-A-M-E-N. The examine. The examine is a practice of asking, how was God involved in my life today? Where did I see God? Where did I not see God? Ann and I have, have this practice that we journal on somewhat of a daily basis, but we take the last week of the year, last week of December, 
sometimes over into January, and we look back through our journal. We're simply asking some of the examined questions. Where have we seen God move? Where was I being drawn close to God? Where have I been away from God? Where was God silent? And so I want to give you four very quick steps to an examine. These all together take just a few minutes. And they're done as part of a Sabbath ritual. They can be done, typically done at the end of your Sabbath. Is a great time as you kind of conclude Sabbath. So the first thing you're going to do is Thanksgiving. And that is simply, thank you God for inviting me into your presence. We don't do that very often. We, we don't thank God that God has opened that door for us to come in the very presence of the Creator. So thank you God for creating and inviting me into your space. Second step, review. Review your day. Recall specific moments. Where did you feel joy? Where did you feel heartache? Where did you feel close? Where did you feel far away from God? Just review what, what draws you closer to God, what pushes you away. Just a chance to ask those questions. And then finally, you end with looking toward tomorrow. Folks, Monday's gonna come. Or Sunday, or whenever the Sabbath, the next day is going to happen. It's going to come. And the world is going to put the demand. So how can you perhaps engage with what God has for you in the coming day, the coming week, or the coming year? So, light some candles. Let them just be a symbol of entering a holy time and space. Have some time where you simply listen. Make your prayer dialogue and not monologue. Simply ask, God, what do you have for me? And don't be afraid if it shows up as a vision, as, a, as an imaginative place. Remember, the question is not, was that God or was that imagination? It's, is it truth? And third, maybe the examine. Maybe you engage in that ancient practice Folks, light some candles. Create time and space. And I want to end with these words from 1926 from a world-famous philosopher and theologian. Don't underestimate the value of doing nothing, of just going along, listening to all the things you can't hear and not bothering. That theologian and philosopher, Winnie the Pooh. Let's pray. Gracious God, Gracious and almighty God, thank you for your gift and invitation of entering Sabbath. God, we do confess that so often we run away from that. We run away to our restlessness so that we can feel productive and we can feel efficient. Yet God, you call us away from that. Please forgive us. God, we, we want to enter into your rest and into your presence. Thank you for offering that. Amen. Let's stand together.
We are a moment You are forever Lord of the ages And God before time We are a vapor You are eternal Love everlasting 